A few years ago, our family purchased a made-for-TV movie called Jack and the Beanstalk, The Real Story. Of course, we all know the story, the fairy tale of Jack and the Beanstalk. It's a desperate mother and her son, Jack, are on the brink of starvation. They have one cow, and they want to sell that for enough funds to get through the next short bit of life. And Jack meets a straight, strange little man who dupes Jack and gives him a handful of beans for this cow. Jack's mother's incensed, throws the beans out the window in despair, but that night, of course, a beanstalk grows to an evil world in the sky to which Jack able, is able to climb. There he meets an oppressive giant who threatens to murder him and grind his bones to make his bread. His threatening posture convinces Jack that he's just in stealing from this giant. So he steals, among other things, a goose that lays golden eggs. He flees this evil world. The giant pursues him. He chops down the beanstalk. The giant falls and dies. And Jack and his mother live happily ever after. But in the movie we watched, we are told that this story is untrue. Jack, we find, was a revisionist historian. He rewrites history to his own favor in this form of this popular tale to hide the real truth. That the giant world was actually a wonderful paradise inhabited by friendly and generous giants. This paradise was sustained by the golden eggs that were laid by the golden goose. And so when he stole them, this giant world was cast into terrible state. And so the giant pursues Jack to get the goose back and uh, in the process loses his life and it actually is a terrible story of murder and theft and mayhem that Jack actually covers up. So Jack is made to look like a hero instead of a villain, the villain that he really was. The reason I tell this story, I don't often begin my sermons with stories of this nature, as you know is because I sometimes think I come to the book of Esther in much the same way. Esther the queen occupies something of a special place in the hearts of many people, Jews and Christians alike. She tends to be seen as a paragon of godliness, of virtue, faithfulness, a beautiful light standing in a grim world of darkness, and by heroically submitting to her husband with humble Christian grace, she's able to save all of the Jewish people. But just like the fictional tale of Jack and the Beanstalk, some basic elements of the story of Esther tend to be overlooked when we tell the story this way. She, of course, did exhibit great bravery. It was instrumental, of course, in saving the Jewish nation from a very difficult chapter of its history. But sometimes there's a tendency to delete certain portions of the story that I want to draw your attention to this morning, and also, historically, to add a number of features to this story that aren't there to make Esther look better than perhaps she is. She was actually something of a troubled person. I think this will emerge as we look at, at the story today. The history of the interpretation of the book of Esther has long been one in which there's a lot of debate. 
Martin Luther, in fact, wrote these words, I am so great an enemy of the book of Esther that I wish it had never come to us at all because it has too many heathen unnaturalities. Martin Luther writes this. We tend to be familiar with his complaints about the book of James, but uh, he's actually more concerned about the book of Esther. He doesn't like the book, he says. Most believers have not been so bold as to suggest it be removed from the canon. Nonetheless, the history of the interpretation of the book of Esther has been such that there has been a lot of work done to salvage what is a troubling story. In fact, a matter of years after it was written, we are introduced to a document called the Additions to Esther. If you add the additions to Esther, which you can find in any standard copy of the Apocrypha, you'll find that the book is expanded by nearly 60% at strategic points where Esther seems to be at her worst and there's extra verses added to make her look really good. She prays, she calls out to God, she, she fasts, she, uh, she does all sorts, she worships, she, she offers sacrifices, and all kinds of things that are, that are inserted between the chapters of the book of Esther to make her uh, look a little bit better. I think there's a solution to this problem that is other than these two, two solutions. One, to add to the book what isn't there. Or, number two, to discard the book. I think there's a solution that we're going to be able to discover uh, this morning, and I think it's not necessary to rewrite or discard the book of Esther if we remember that God and not Esther is the hero of the story. We've said this a couple of times already in the book of Ezra, uh, that when we read the narrative portions of Scripture, we have to remember that the hero of every story is not the human character, but rather the God who stands behind uh, the story. And I think that no book does this become clearer than in the book of Esther. And I think we see here in this book a marvelous exhibition of the providence of God on behalf of his people. You can turn, if you want, to your, uh, to, in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We're not going to read uh, any lengthy sections here, but we will be making reference points as we work our way through the book, and uh, you want to have that open to, to verify and corroborate and perhaps see a little bit of context that we simply don't have time uh, to develop in great detail. This is going to be a single, single sermon here summarizing the book of Esther. And the reason we're doing that, of course, is because we're in our discussion of the book of Ezra. We have come to the end of the first return which is Ezra 1 to 6. We are about to start on the second return, which happens about 60 years later. And a lot happens during those 60 years. And this is probably the most significant event that happens in that gap. And since I only have two sermons for the rest of Ezra, I thought it would be a good idea to sort of fill in this gap to you know, bring to completion uh, within my allotted time this, this series here on the book of Ezra. Remember uh, what we uh, what we found in the book of Ezra? They had been they had been in exile. <clears throat> the people of Israel, <clears throat> excuse me, about a thousand miles away from their homeland, they hung up their harps on the riverside and wept for what they had lost. And indeed, 
they had lost much. And yet God, in his providence, had worked almost in a miraculous way to fulfill the prophecy and to alter the very course of history by elevating Cyrus, this obscure king of Persia, to a place of power toppling the mighty empire of Babylon in a single night without a shot being fired. And this event, we find, paved the way for Israel to return and to rebuild in their homeland. So we saw in the first two chapters of Ezra that there were two fundamental theological theses that stand out at the foundation of the rebuilding of the people God. God is in absolute authority over the affairs of men. And secondly, he is a promise-keeping and faithful God. And we continue then also into chapter 3 with uh, very positive news. Very positive news. God, uh, Israel has makes careful, sacrificial plans necessary to the rebuilding of the temple. Finest materials and craftsmanship are used. The foundations are laid with much fanfare. And then in chapter 4, everything grinds to a halt. And over the next 18 years, the people meet wave after wave of opposition, and the work stops. Under King Darius, however, the next king, there was a brief reprieve. And under the next two Persian kings, we find Xerxes and Artaxerxes, oppression occurs again. Chapter 4 details all of these. Now, last week we discovered during this brief reprieve under Darius, after 15 years of inactivity, they found a way to overcome that opposition and were able, uh, with this new king Darius, uh, to finish the work there. They were attentive to the public ministry of the Word of God, listening to the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. They boldly trust in the providence of God to pave the way and the And God did in a mighty way. We see this exchange of letters intended to stop the work actually brings the work forward and gives them the finances necessary to to bankroll the entire project and a steady spirit of prayer and perseverance. They spend the next four years rebuilding and they come again with great fanfare to the celebration of the Passover when the temple was finally completed. But here in Esther 1... We begin with a discovery that Darius the Great, who had enabled the people to rebuild the temple, has died. And his son, Xerxes, or in most of your Bibles here, his birth name as Ahasuerus, it's a very interesting chapter of the book here. Uh, they, uh, they, there's, for a long time, the, uh, uh, the Esther was thought to be a spurious book, that it was historically inaccurate because there was no King Ahasuerus of Persia. We have very good records, historical records, of the, uh, of the kingdom of Persia, secular records, and there is no King Ahasuerus. And then not too many years ago, there was a discovery uh, that the man Ahasuerus was actually given a new name, Xerxes, when he became the king, as is often the case, and this uh, discovery was made, and uh, Uh, The uh, critics had to grudgingly admit that Esther uh, did, in fact, have some some, uh, truth to it, a ring of truth. Very early on in Xerxes' reign, uh, he exhibits he's not all that great, not a capable ruler. 
As we find here in chapter 1, Xerxes gives a lavish banquet for all of the officials and top military leaders in the empire. And this banquet lasts 180 days, which seems impossible, till you look at the, again, you can, you can marry in some of the secular records of Persia, and you discover that he's building a massive invasion force designed to go into Europe and to topple the Greeks. Okay, so for 180 days, there was a festive air about uh, Persia as they, as they attempt uh, to prepare to, to, uh, to meet the Greeks. So after 180 days are up, this banquet is complete, but they're not quite ready, and so Xerxes declares another banquet. You actually find ten banquets in the, uh, in the book of Esther. Xerxes was just apparently quite fond of banqueting. So he enjoys, he enjoys this, so we find two in the first chapter here. And this second banquet then begins, and it is cut short. Uh, the reason we find here in chapter 1 is because his wife, Vashti, uh, was invited to perform for the men's ceremonies. Uh, she, was, she was hosting her separate banquet for the ladies, and she was invited by probably her drunk husband to come and perform for the men. We're not sure exactly what that entails, but it's probably not good. And so Vashti says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to lower myself uh, to be exhibited this way. And her husband, of course, is furious at her for doing this. Uh, publicly divorces her and banishes her from the kingdom. Xerxes is very stung by this event. He's stood up by his own wife and embarrassed publicly. And so between chapters 1 and 2, we know from, again, secular sources, that he goes off to war with the Greeks. And he is defeated. He does succeed in sacking Athens, but he loses so many men at the famous Battle of Thermopylae that his army is stretched terribly thin, and he falls to the Greeks at, again, rather famous battles of Plataea and Salamis. And so Xerxes ultimately fails in his purpose and heads home and decides to try his hand at being a husband. So in chapter 2, he arranges here with his producers to put on a racy new TV series, Who Wants to Marry the King? Of course, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, but in a manner not too dissimilar from these reality TV shows that bear similar titles, a collection of, of beautiful women are made. Josephus tells us that there were some 400. They were all gathered to woo the king with their most sensuous allurements. And among these 400 women, we find the title character of this book, Esther. Esther, we are told, was a Jew who had chosen to remain behind with her devious cousin Mordecai when the faithful remnant had returned to the land of Palestine years before. Now this of itself does not mean that she is a wicked person. Many, many Jews stayed behind. We know Daniel himself, who is, uh, uh, comes out pretty squeaky clean in the biblical record, stayed behind. And, uh, and so Esther stays behind, but she does not have the same Godward inclinations that Daniel had. In fact, there seems to be right up at the very front a, a study in contrast between Esther and Daniel. Uh, Esther 
Well, Daniel, of course, risked death by not despoiling himself with the king's meat. But we find, contrarily, that Esther conceals her identity and eats everything that is put before her. Daniel is very careful to say, I am a Jew and will not do this. Esther says, I'll keep my identity a secret and do whatever you ask. And perhaps the capstone here is the fact that in chapter 2, verse 15, Esther seeks the advice and strictly hears to this advice of the king's eunuch on what she should wear and what she should do when she gets her night with the king. If there's any doubt here, let me assure you that this was not a meeting to watch the Home and Garden Channel over a cup of tea. Esther knows what she needs to do to win And she does. She could have lost the contest, but she wanted to win. So in direct violation of a whole raft of biblical Mosaic commands, both the spirit and letter of the Mosaic law, Esther pulls out all the stops in order to marry this Zoroastrian pagan unbeliever. Who knows why? Maybe for the money. Maybe for the power. Who knows? We do know that it wasn't to please God. She sought this victory in violation of every possible law of God. And so with great fanfare, and of course with another one of Xerxes' famous banquets, she becomes the next queen of the Persian Empire, and she solidifies her relationship at the end of this second chapter, chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, by discovering a plot. She and her uncle discover a plot to assassinate the king. They expose it. And so the king is forever in her debt. Time continues on here. And about five years later, we come to Esther chapter 3. And in this chapter, Mordecai makes a rather foolish move about five years later. In this chapter, we find a man named Haman who has been raised to a very high position in the Persian Empire, probably to second in command in the entire empire. This Haman is described here as an Agagite. It's rather a strange designation, and there's some debate as to what this means. There does seem to be a geographic region named Agag, uh, north and east of Babylon. Uh, Others would point to the fact that there is a very famous person by the name of Agag in 1 Samuel, uh, the uh, a king, a pagan king, whom Saul was supposed to kill and doesn't. is this famous event here where he refuses to be obedient to God, and Samuel comes along and does what to Agag? He hews him in pieces, right? Okay. So if this fellow is a descendant of Agag, he has no love for the Jews, right? He doesn't like the Jewish people because of what they did to his ancestor, We find here that Mordecai refuses to bow to this high official. Some would suggest that he was exhibiting faith. This doesn't seem likely. There's nothing in the law that forbids bowing to royalty and other government officials. He apparently was just a jealous man who was miffed because this man had been elevated and he had not. Mordecai's stubbornness proves very costly. 
This man Haman, who is drunk with his new power, is enraged that this Jew would refuse to bow to him. And discerning that it was Mordecai's Jewishness that led him to refuse to bow, Haman decides to exact revenge by killing all of the Jews in the entire empire. That's his plan. He does something very interesting that shouldn't be overlooked. He decides that the Jews should be killed on a date determined by the casting of lots. In Hebrew, this is the pur, uh, the, the lots, the, the pur. And so we find that the, uh, the casting of lots is known as the Jewish holiday of Purim, the casting of the lots. And we find in here an, an understanding that God in his providence gave the Jews some time. Okay, so these lots determined that the extermination date for the Jewish people would be almost a year. So the Jews had time to prepare. Mordecai now is frantic. He needs to undo the damage that he has done. And so he begs his niece, Esther, in chapter 4, to reverse her policy of secrecy and divulge to the king that she was a Jew and beg for pardon for her people. Wants her husband to intervene for the Jewish people. But in order to do this, she would oblige to be obliged to risk her life by entering into the king's presence uninvited, an action that typically could result in the death of the person who did this. So she wants to, has to do this, basically tell them that she has been lying to him all these years, that she's a Jew, and in fact, there's a sticky situation that would mean that she would die. So looking with me at verse four, chapter 4, verse 13, at how Mordecai tells her to make the argument. After hearing her reticence to go before the king, Mordecai says this in uh, chapter 4. And I have to find it here. Four, chapter, chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews in another place, and you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. The first of Mordecai's arguments is easy to follow. The king has issued a decree that all the Jews are to be killed. It is an irreversible decree. And due to the binding nature of this decree, there can be no exception for Esther. If this, if this decree is carried out, then Esther will necessarily die. The law in Persia was actually higher than the king. Once the king established the law, he could not undo it. So Esther is faced with the realization that she would die. She might die instantly if she goes before the king and he is displeased. But she will die in a few months if she does nothing. Mordecai's second statement is a little bit more difficult, but it's a critical one for understanding the whole book. Commentaries, though, are all over the place. In it, Mordecai appeals to the possibility of relief in another place. 
But he notes that if deliverance comes from this other place, Esther will die. There are three options here. First, it could be, this could be a tepid expression of faith in God. There's, of course, reason for this being the case. God had, in fact, established more than one covenant with Israel and has promised that he will preserve his people. And so perhaps Mordecai is saying, well, I'd like you, Esther, to save us, but God will save us one way or the other. This doesn't seem to be compatible with Mordecai's modus operandi, though. Mordecai has not evidenced himself to be a believing Jew at any point in this book. He doesn't mention God as the source of his faith. There is no explanation for the next phrase, that Esther would die if God chose to deliver the Jewish nation by some other means. In fact, this is, of course, one of the interesting things about the book of Esther. There is not a single mention of God, not a single mention of prayer, not a single mention of the law of God. These are strangely absent And even here, this is the case. For these reasons, I'm hesitant to to suggest that Mordecai was hoping for deliverance from the hand of God. A second explanation here is that Mordecai was hoping to appeal to help from someone else. Perhaps he would get some help from the Greeks, who did not like Persia after all. And perhaps uh, he could appeal to help from the Greeks. The Greeks might come to the aid of the Jews, uh, and uh, this would explain things. It would explain also the threat to Esther. If Mordecai managed to convince this foreign power to come and threaten Persia, he wouldn't be able to guarantee the safety of those within the king's own court. This doesn't seem to explain, however, why Mordecai fails to identify the source of deliverance and how the lowly Jews might convince the great Greek empire to come to their aid. This leads a third explanation, I think that one that makes the best sense. Mordecai is not saying that deliverance will come from some other source, but that deliverance would come for them in some other place. That is, Mordecai and the other Jews would flee the empire in order to avoid extermination, and they would leave Esther behind to fend for herself when the day of destruction arrived. I don't know that I'm necessarily, you know, uh, locked in on one of these conclusions. I tend towards the last. But in any case... The point is clear. Esther will not fare well if she doesn't do something. Mordecai also convinces Esther in this verse to appear before the king and petition him with the following statement. Who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for times such as this. Again, this may be an expression of faith. Some have understood it this way, but there's nothing in Mordecai's statement that suggests this. I think he's pretty much saying that some things are just meant to be, kind of fatalistic statement that we sometimes, unfortunately, hear as much from unbelievers as we do from believers. I'd like to think that Mordecai is expressing faith in God, uh, but if he is, this does not seem consistent with his character as reflected in the rest of this book. But Mordecai does make his case well, and Esther is convinced to go to the king. Esther was committed to this course of action. She writes back and says, okay, I'll do it. 
she asks that the people fast for her for three days and three nights. Regardless of whether there's an expression of faith here, we can be sure that God is behind the scenes moving in the heart of the king, as Proverbs 15 says, that he can and does. And God does indeed deliver the Jews. After the three days of fasting, Esther timidly enters into Xerxes' throne room in the beginning of chapter 5. And you can almost feel the tension here as you read, but as we probably already know, God caused the heart of the king to be favorably inclined to the sudden appearance of his favorite wife. Xerxes receives Esther graciously, granting her one request, any request, as great as she wanted up to half of the kingdom, he says. And he would do it for her. Now, Esther is very wily. She doesn't ask immediately for the request she has in mind. Instead, she says, I'd like to have a banquet. She knows the key to her husband's heart, right? He likes to eat. He likes to party. And so Xerxes is like, sure, I'll do that for you. So there's a banquet, seven days. And then the king says to her, well, what do you really want from me? And Esther says, you know, I'd like another banquet. And Xerxes is like, you got it. I love these banquets. And so another seven-day banquet. And then Xerxes comes again and says, okay, one more time, Esther. What do you really want? What do you really want? Now, during this delay, some interesting things happen. She says, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'll, have an, I'll have another private banquet here with you and me and with Haman. So what does God do during these two weeks? Well, God causes two important things to happen that last night. Well, first of all, Haman sees Mordecai at the gate of the city, and Mordecai is relaxing. He thinks he's won. And so when Haman comes by, Mordecai doesn't stand, doesn't bow, doesn't even acknowledge Haman going past. And Haman is ticked. He's really angry. And see, so he orders that a gallows be built for Mordecai, and Mordecai be hung in the morning. He figures that this is not going to be hard uh, to get Xerxes to give permission for. He's already given permission to kill all the Jews. Why not kill one a few days early? Meanwhile, back at the palace, by an act of divine providence, the king cannot sleep. This perhaps seems, this seems to be the hinge upon which the book turns. That night, the king couldn't sleep. By God's providence, the king couldn't sleep, and so he asks that the chronicles of his years as king be read to him. I, I think this is hilarious, actually. What can be more conceited than to read your own biography? But he's, but he's having this story read to him, and by chance, by providence, the chapter of the story that is read to him is the story of how Mordecai had discovered this assassination plot way back here in chapter 2. And so 
the king, Xerxes, says, you know, I'd really like to reward this fellow. He's never been rewarded. It sort of slips through the cracks. I want to reward this man. I'm going to reward him tomorrow. And so the next morning, Haman is waiting outside the king's house to ask permission to hang Mordecai. But Haman does, but, but, the, but the king does not let him speak. Instead, the king says to Haman, what do you think I ought to do for someone that I just love and I appreciate and I want to reward? Now, Haman thinks it's him. And so he says, well, you should have some sort of a ceremony. Let, the, let, the, let this man wear royal robes, receive a royal horse, have a citywide parade in his honor. But much to his dismay, he finds that Xerxes has his enemy Mordecai in view. And so Mordecai is going to receive all of, these, all of this fanfare on his behalf. And Haman realizes this is probably not a good time to ask to kill Mordecai. He's no dummy. So he said, I'm not going to do that here. And so he goes home crying to his wife. He pouts for a few minutes. But then it was time for Esther's second banquet. Remember this banquet that was requested with the king and with Haman and with Esther. And so they come together, they enjoy their banquet, they eat, they feast. And now again, Xerxes asks Esther, okay, we've been waiting for your real request. What is the real request that you want me to do for you? And Esther is very clever. She basically breaks down and says, don't let him kill me, pointing at Haman. And Xerxes is like, what? Why would he want to kill you? And he says, and she divulges at this point that she's a Jew. And that the order to kill the Jews in response to Haman's request was actually an order to kill his own wife. Xerxes is incensed. Stomps out of the room. Haman and Esther are left alone. Haman is, is desperate. He reaches down and grabs the ankles of Esther, begging her to intervene and save his life. The king walks back in just as he's doing this. He thinks that Haman is molesting his wife, and now he's terribly incensed and orders Haman to be hanged on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. The reversal of fortunes is complete. Mordecai receives all of Haman's estates. He's given his powerful position as second in command in the empire. And because of a wrinkle of Persian law, um, Xerxes can't rescind his previous order that all the Jews be killed, but he issues a second order that the Jews can fight back and whoever wants to help them can And we find that on the very day that the Jews are supposed to be exterminated, the tables are turned and actually 75,000 of the Jews' enemies are put to death. The story ends, as you guessed it, with two more banquets for the Jews. And in fact, a decree from the king that one of these banquets, the Feast of Purim, be recognized and observed annually from that point forward. And we still, to this day, find the Jews celebrating the Feast of Purim, usually in the month of February or March. 
So what is it that we're supposed to take away from this remarkable story? I hope you enjoy it. I like reading stories. I like hearing stories. And uh, hopefully you do too. So what do we do? What do we take away from this story? Well, I think it should be a foregone conclusion by now that I'm not going to say that this is a study in godly character from the lives of Esther or her uncle. Now, granted, Esther was pretty gutsy. She put her life on the line. She was a brave woman. But if you size her up against the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, she doesn't fare so very well. Which brings us to the dubious conclusion that there are really no good guys in this story. There are some who are better than others, but none who is a good guy, except one. There's one good guy, the hero of the story, whose name is never mentioned in the entire book, right? The hero of this story is not Esther, not Mordecai, not Haman, certainly not Xerxes. No, the hero of this story is God himself. This God who ordains everything, yea, even the wicked for the day of disaster. The God who caused the king to look with favor upon Esther. The God who even caused the king to have insomnia at just the right moment. The God who honored his covenant promises to Israel, even in the very most dire of circumstances. And it is that point, I think, that stands as the beautiful message for us today who live 2,500 years later. Israel's God, who crafts out this extremely interesting plot, keeps us on the edge of our seats for 10 chapters. Israel's God, who providentially preserved his people and ensured the fulfillment of his promises, is a faithful God, even when his people are not. I think that's the message that we come away with from the book of Esther. And aren't we glad that's the case? Aren't we glad that's the case? For so often, we are not faithful to God. We are not faithful to our commitments to Jesus Christ. And yet, the same God who was Esther's God and the people of Israel's God is the same God we serve today. And this God is faithful to his promises to us, even when we are disobedient to him. And that, my friends, is a great assurance for us as the people of God rebuild after a setback. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful today for the stories of Scripture. We're glad for them. They're interesting. They're enjoyable to read. They're filled with suspense. They capture us, bring us along, and then bring home a message that is of one of great comfort for us. Lord, we thank you for this story that tells us a great deal about your character, about your nature, about the fact that you are a promise-keeping God and a sovereign God all rolled into one who has the interests of his people even when they are not acting as they ought to. Lord, we find ourselves so often in that situation. But we are not acting as we ought to. 
And yet we have this great confidence that you are God, are a faithful God, a sovereign God, and one who is deeply interested in the lives of your chosen people. Lord, may this cause us not to be like Esther or Mordecai, but to be other, but, but to be other than them, to be faithful, to be concerned about your expectations for us so that we may live appropriately and in, co- in consonance, in concert with your expectations for us. Lord, I ask that you would encourage us with these words today and cause us to redouble our commitments to be faithful to you. In your name we pray. Amen.